So if I may be so bold as to claim, if you are not regularly surprised by Scripture, I would argue you're doing it wrong. Right? We can, we can feel like, ah, it's too hard, it's too inaccessible, I'm never going to understand, and so we don't really give it the time that it deserves, the respect that is required, the, the diligence that is required to really glean from it. Or we assume, I totally understand that, don't really, don't really need that, and so we don't give it the time that it requires and the diligence that, that, that it needs in order to glean things from that. Um, but I, I was just so delighted over the last couple of weeks um, as, as my father walked me through a passage that I have read easily hundreds of times over the last decades. And yet, in, in the way that only he can, I felt like new treasures were mined from this, new encouragement. Uh, not new truths, the truth doesn't change. He just he keeps turning that diamond to let you see a new facet, a new reflection off of that in just incredible ways. And so uh, I... Uh, Let's go exploring together in Philippians chapter 2. Over the last couple weeks, we've been in this series, The Extravagant Kingdom. And in week one, Jay unpacked the idea of this extravagant king, right, who, who gives grace upon grace. First and foremost, he gives his own son to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserve to die, to adopt us into his kingdom family. And then on top of that, gives grace upon grace upon grace. He's provided everything that we have. Everything that we have is from him or we acquired using gifts that he gave to us. And so as citizens in this extravagant king's extravagant kingdom, we should be extravagantly generous. And so last week, Jay talked about extravagant giving and how as Sons and daughters of the extravagantly generous king, we should be extravagantly generous people. And this morning, we're going to talk not about extravagant giving, but extravagant living. So here's what we see in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And if you are here, I hope, hopefully you have a Bible open in front of you. If you're tuning in online, hopefully you also have a Bible open in front of you. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we see this. So, and I'm going to stop right there. Because that's an important word, right? That's supposed to capture our attention. So, for those of you who are not English majors or nerds like me, so is something we call a conjunction. And for all of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s, we know exactly what that is. Why? Conjunction, junction. Yes, of course. Schoolhouse rock. The educational tool for the ages informed us all. Conjunction, junction. What's your function? Hooking up words and phrases and clauses, right? Exactly. So when we see that, we should go, wait a minute. Paul's trying to hook two things together here. What is he hooking together? Right? When we use so, that's a really blessedly brief way of saying, because of all the things that I have just said previously, therefore, but since we, nobody has time for that, we say, so, let's do this. So what is it that he just mentioned that he is connecting this next idea to? If we go back just a few verses, 
Starting in verse 27, what we see here is only let your manner of life, and only, what he's saying there is that one thing, the one thing that you need to do, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he goes on, and not frightened by anything by your component, opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, right? So that our salvation is a gift from God, for it has been granted to you, it's been given to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaging in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So he's saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ and stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And also, difficulty is coming. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy or compassion. Do you get the sense here that, that Paul is setting up the advanced placement class? No, he just keeps lowering the bar, lower and lower and lower. If there is any comfort whatsoever in the love of Christ, if you have any compassion at all. He just keeps lowering the bar to drive home the point that who he is speaking to is everyone who professes Jesus. Everyone. If you are actually a Christian and it means anything to you at all, then what? Verse 3. Sorry, verse 2. I'm getting ahead of myself. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, you may notice a little bit of redundancy there. Right? Starting back in verse 27, we see there's one mind, being the same mind, of one mind, in full accord. Have this mind among yourself, he's about to say in a couple verses. He keeps saying the same thing, it seems, over and over again. And there's generally two reasons why someone is redundant. A, they are a really bad communicator. Or B, they are a really good communicator. All of us middle-of-the-road people don't typically spend a lot of time being hyper-redundant. Really bad communicators are redundant because they don't have much to say, so they just keep repeating the only thing that they have over and over and over again. Really good communicators are redundant because they know that's how we learn stuff. That's how things get from our brain down to our heart and, and burrow its way down and develop deep roots. And because they know that that's how we learn, they will repeat certain ideas, often saying the same thing over and over again, but in different ways. Paul is in the B category. He is a really good communicator. In the original language, in, in Koine Greek, Paul is not actually using the same word over and over and over again here. He's saying the same thing 
over and over again, but in slightly different ways in order to drive this point home. So dabbling in a little bit of Greek does not unlock mysteries that are inaccessible to everyone else just reading a plain old boring English Bible. You can trust your English translation. People over hundreds of years have worked really, really hard to try to come up with really reliable English translations. But sometimes, while it doesn't ever change the meaning of the text, understanding what the original author said literally can, can expand our understanding, a shed just a little bit more light on it. If you can picture walking to the other side of the room and just turning one more light on, it doesn't change anything about the room. It just removes a few of the shadows and, and a few things you can see a little bit more clearly. Right? You can see a little bit more detail in there. And so in digging around in this this week, one of the things that I noticed was uh, in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. If you're in the ESV, the word mind is, is in verse 27 there. In the Greek, it's actually the word that most often we translate soul. One soul. The word in the Greek carries an, an enormous meaning. It's a really kind of intangible, nebulous word that, that describes like the core of who you are. Most often it's translated in the New Testament either soul or life. And it's so much more than just like the ideas that you adhere to. What it, what it carries with it is this idea that it is, it is literally everything that makes you, you. Think the soul of who you are. Paul is urging them to be united in that. He's not saying, hey, just have the same general principles in common. He's saying, be united in the intangible reality of what makes you, you. Unite in that. And then the rest of the verse, as it, as it goes on, being of the same mind, you could say that, focus on the same things. Okay, having the same love. That one's pretty straightforward. It means having the same love. People who love the same thing. Being in full accord uh, we translate that, and again, part of this is because when they're translating into English, they're going, that's just a weird way to say that. We don't say it that way. This will be a little bit more understandable. So they're not trying to make it more nebulous. They're trying to make it a little more clear, right? But so in full accord, we have that word again where it's having the same soul together. Sometimes in Scripture, this is translated harmonious, which is a fantastic word, and I'm going to touch on that in just a little bit because as a music guy, that's super awesome. And at last, end of one mind. What it literally means is the ones who think the one thing. So when you read verse 2 in here, what you could see, it'd be fair to translate this, focus on the same things as the ones who have the same love, united in soul or harmonious, the ones who think the one thing. It doesn't change the meaning, right? You could still arrive at that same 
concept here, reading it in English, but, but for me, I found it added a little clarity. It helped shed a little light on where it was a little cloudy, a little shadowed for me, where it felt like it's just, okay, it's the same thing, it's the same thing, it's the same thing. No, no, no. He just keeps building bigger and bigger and bigger until he arrives at this point. But here's the thing that really blew my mind. Seeing the word soul here, which is not, I did not come up with this idea. There's several English translations that will translate this word soul. So if, any, if anyone, asterisk, footnote, if anyone ever tells you, hey, I discovered this thing in the Greek that no one has ever seen for 2,000 years, there's a word for that. It's called heresy. That's not going to happen, right? So you're not going to go like, wait a minute, I just learned in the Greek it says Jesus is not the way and the truth and the life. No, 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 no. That's nonsense. But again, it just kind of adds a little fuller. We turn that one light on and we go, oh, I never saw that side before. That side felt a little, a little dark. Now I see what it's really saying. So what I saw in here, in this and in other English translations, the word soul helped me connect it to another phrase where I saw the exact same phrase and never noticed before. Maybe you're going to see this and you go, seriously, Robbie? I learned this in like junior high. Awesome! I just caught up. So praise Jesus. We're finally on the same page. Check this out. Now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own They had everything in common, and there was not a needy person among them. Paul, this is what blew my mind, Paul is not pointing forward to some future hopeful impossibility. He's not speaking to some general platitude about some pie-in-the-sky utopia that's not ever, no one thinks we're actually going to ever achieve this, right? Like, aim for perfection and you just might hit excellence. Shoot for the stars and you just might hit the moon. Which, why would I want to hit the moon? That doesn't seem, anyway. I, that's not what he's saying. Paul is actually pointing back to something that has actually already happened and is currently happening. What he wants for the Philippians, he's looking at this and saying, hey look, our brothers and sisters right here are doing this. I love you so much, I want the same thing for you too. What he is describing for them is not only accessible, at this time you could travel to a city and watch it happening exactly like this. Now, I'm going to leave this verse up here as I read the next verse here in Philippians. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition, self-promotion, or conceit, an exaggerated view of yourself. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Does that look familiar to you? Do you see? Paul is pointing to people who are actually living this way right now and urging the Philippians, I want this for you too. It will complete my joy, he says. If you guys 
If you, my brothers and sisters, can live the same way that our brothers and sisters in Judea have been. And the extraordinary thing is that 250 years after this was written, this was still the reputation of Christians in the Roman Empire. Now, who does this apply to? Who should have this expectation? Well, how high did Paul set that bar? (laughs) If you have any encouragement whatsoever, any comfort in the love of Christ, any participation at all in the Holy Spirit, a molecule of affection and compassion. Church, this this is not advanced Christianity. This is the basic minimum expectation of those who belong to Jesus. This is what the Acts Church learned in new member orientation. Listen to this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And wonders, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is the church, church. Wait, Robbie, that's impractical. If I give away all of my stuff, well, then I'm poor too, and then we're just all poor and nobody can help anybody. Goodness gracious, that is nonsense. It's nonsense. In our desire to have a really good reason to not have to obey what Scripture commands, we stop listening. We're not actually reading carefully to see what's actually happening here. It'd be easier to just dismiss it so I don't have to really give it much thought. But if we listen carefully, we will see that what's actually happening here is people obeying Jesus. When he says in Luke 3, 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So, the goal is not that we all have no tunic. It's that we all have a tunic. Right? So the person with two tunics says, wait a minute, I've got two tunics. Who needs two tunics? You have no tunics. I will give you one of mine. Now we both have a tunic. Nobody has no tunics. Huzzah! Right? Probably didn't say huzzah, but it's pretty simple. Right? The, 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 what happens is that nobody's poor anymore. 
Not we all make ourselves destitute, but no one has to go without anymore because there are people who have excess, who share with those who have none, and now everyone has enough. And we rejoice in the provision of the Lord who provides excess for some so that they can provide for those that have less. It's awesome. It's it's incredible, and, and so often we look at this and we go, well, how is this their first response? Like, this feels so advanced. How, like, right out of the gate, is this how they respond? How does this become normal? So normal that Paul encourages the church in Philippi that if Jesus has any effect on them whatsoever, they should look like this. Just like those people over there do, currently. Well, Paul tells us what the source is. Next verse, in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Sharing in the mind of Christ and the thoughts of Christ. When Paul is urging them toward unity of soul, that harmoniousness, that we would be harmonious together. What he's saying is that we would all sing together in harmony with the melody that our Jesus is singing. That we would be united in song, all singing the same song that our Jesus is singing over his creation. Come on, that's beautiful. Paul wants us to understand this, and he wants us to understand it's accessible to us. One spirit, one soul, one life together with our Jesus. Right now, not just on the other side of eternity, but we practice it right now. We're just going to be better at it then. But we practice right now to be like our Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. These people in the early church understood that's our standard. That's who we want to look like. That's who we want to live life just like. And when a people who are surrendered to Jesus understand how extraordinary it is that he gave up what we can't even comprehend, and I'm fairly convinced we're not going to understand fully on the other side of eternity either. Because right? I don't get omniscience in eternity. And so I still... I'm not going to understand just exactly what it is that Christ set aside, what he emptied from himself in order to take the form of a servant so that we could murder him so that he could rescue and adopt his murderers. That's, that's more than my brain can fully understand, but it gives me enough to cling to and worship and celebrate. And when we understand this, that he does this out of his love for the Father and out of his love for us, that he gave all he has to demonstrate his dependence on the Father and his care for others, 
we would obviously want to delight in the fact that we get to do the same thing. Not out of begrudging submission or duty or obligation, but just like our Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Not of begrudging submission, but out of the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross. And so it's our joy, our delight to get to share with one another, to get to serve one another, to get to think of others more highly than we do ourselves. Out of joy, and verse, back to verse, uh, uh, verse 9 in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him, our Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This, he is the one that we worship, and this is our worship. Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God because of all that he has gifted you with, that he has extravagantly gifted you with to present your bodies, to present your lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. These believers believe this. They weren't perfect. If they were perfect, we wouldn't have the rest of the New Testament, which is saying like, oh, you guys kind of came off the rails over here. Let's bring it back in. But one thing they understood is being a follower of Jesus means we should probably follow Jesus and do what he did. Like he, This is how he lived, so we should do that. This is what he taught, so we should do that. This is what he commanded, so we should definitely do that. And so they did. And discovered this is just simply who the people of Jesus are. Extravagantly generous people. Because we understand that we are extravagantly blessed people. And out of our abundance of his grace upon grace upon grace, we view ourselves as having the privilege and the delight of getting to demonstrate that love to others by blessing them, by elevating them, by serving them in demonstration of the extravagant love of our Father. We see in Acts these early believers and throughout the New Testament they were not just extravagant in their giving, not just in, in giving money, but they were extravagant in living at the rhythm of their lives was utterly reorganized around the reality of who Jesus is and who they are because of him. And because of that, they lived as a community different from all the people around them. Not just giving money, but opening up their homes, sharing meals with one another, sharing their clothes with one another. We see throughout history that for hundreds of years, they had this extraordinary reputation of meeting the practical needs of the people in the community around them, not just in, in ways that preserved their lives, but also gave them dignity as fellow image bearers of God, even before they were followers of Jesus. One of the ways that they did this that seems weird to us was, was providing burial services for the poor, which in our context, that seems 
kind of unusual. Like, why would that be a big deal? Well, if you can imagine for a second that you knew because you did not have enough money, your loved one that just passed away was going to be thrown into the woods or on the side of the road to allow the animals and the elements to take care of that. As that sickness stirs in your gut for a moment, now imagine a complete stranger coming to you and saying, I've got this. And paying every expense to make sure that your beloved is treated with dignity and care and the respect they deserve as an image bearer of the living God of the universe. That had an impact. A massive cultural impact. And while that and many of these other examples feel foreign and extreme to us, the reality is it's only because we have normalized the wrong practices, the wrong habits. What we do regularly feels normal to us, right? The more you practice these things, the more normal they begin to feel and and eventually don't even feel like a sacrifice or an imposition. They just are normal. It feels weird to not do that anymore. So the key is normalizing those things, doing them, practicing them enough, getting over that hump of this feels weird and uncomfortable until you do it enough and you go, this feels super normal and why would I do it any other way? You're the weirdo for not doing this. At the church that I came from in Texas, the church that I pastored before coming here, there was a season in our church life where one out of every five families in our church had someone living with them that was not a family member. Ex-cons, recovering addicts, friends that just needed help getting on their feet, and homeless strangers filled our congregation because the normal response to someone being in need was, well, just move them in. Sometimes for days, sometimes for years. We lived in this way because that had become normal to us. Because my wife Stacy's parents had a half dozen guys, former gang members, ex-cons, former military that were needing help getting on their feet, rotating through their house. Because their perspective was, we have a room. They need a room. They should use our room. Until that's the normal response. And it was normal for one couple and their family became normal to an entire community of believers. Such that even those who were not in a place where they were able to do that still participated by providing rides or meals or help to the ones who had people living with them. Here in this church, we have people who see their time and their resources as belonging to everyone else. 
And every time we send out a notice that somebody is moving out or moving in, there are people that we can count on will always show up. And it's not necessarily the people that you might expect. People in this congregation who just show up at your door with a generator when the power goes out because they bought a generator for when the power goes out. Not just when their power goes out, but when the power goes out. So whoever's power is out needs a generator that I bought for when the power goes out. Or who show up in your backyard with chainsaws, which in most places is weird <laughs> and super terrifying. But here is an enormous blessing when you didn't even call anybody and someone shows up in your backyard because a tree fell down in one of our yards. And so the normal thing to do is to stop whatever I'm doing, to leave work, to come home, to stop everything and go help my neighbor because a tree went down in one of our yards. There are several retirement and care facilities in this area that are filled with people whose own families do not come and visit them, but who members of this faith family do. Regularly. The rhythm of their lives includes taking time to go visit people who are not their blood relations to provide the care and the love and demonstrate the dignity that their Heavenly Father speaks over them. To take time to care for those who are unable to care for themselves. Arguably one of the most often mentioned acts of faithfulness in all of Scripture. We have people who are part of this family who have radically altered the rhythms of their lives and opened their homes to foster, to adopt, to meet regularly with kids who are going through family court in order to demonstrate the love of the Father who declares in his word, I am the Father to the fatherless. And then demonstrate the gospel which declares, I have paid the price and done everything required to adopt you into my family. These are not extracurricular bonus activities for the super spiritual. According to Paul, it's simply what we do. Because it's who we are. It's sharing our lives, uniting our lives, uniting our souls by the Spirit in harmony with Jesus to complete our joy and His joy to the glory of the Father. I am not claiming to know exactly what this looks like. There is some difficulty in working this out, right? Because the reality is, is that we live in a country that functions differently than 95.75% of the rest of the world currently, let alone how different we, differently we function from first century Judea. Right? So there's some complications here that we need to work out, but we need to work them out, and we need to work them out together. Because while maybe one of us can't say, it looks exactly like this. I promise you, it looks like something. 
And it looks like something that is going to appear irrational and radical to the culture around us. And it's supposed to be something that looks like something together. Something so unified that when people on the outside of the church look in and encounter us, their response would be, wait, you mean you're all like this? That is a testimony. One nice guy, one generous woman can be explained away. A people cannot be easily dismissed. It is one thing to meet a person who uses their position at work to bless others and elevate others rather than simply elevating themselves. Someone like my dad, who I did not learn until after his passing, when his personal assistant of decades came and shared several stories about my dad with me, and one of those was that uh, as a vice president and general counsel for a large corporation, um, my dad, as an attorney, basically came to the rest of the company and said, we're doing this, try and stop me. Um, said, re he reduced his own salary and gave the difference to a low-level employee that he knew was about to get laid off and his family could not handle that. He saw his position as an opportunity to elevate others, to protect and care for others, not just an opportunity to enrich and protect himself and his own family. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. Now, imagine, you think of that and you go, wow, that's one extraordinary guy. Now imagine a bunch of people in your company who live and act like that. In your school who function in that way, from the highest levels of upper management all the way down to the lowest rung on the ladder. People that demonstrate, I am going to use my position to elevate others, to bless others, to encourage others, to uplift others. That is not easily dismissible. You cannot just dismiss, ah, oh, that's just a nice guy. No, no, that's a whole group of people. What is wrong with these people? No, no, it is what is right with these people and the extraordinary God that unites them to think the one thing. It speaks much less about them as individuals and much more about the one who unites them. So church, how do you view your position at work? Do you leverage it to bless and to elevate others? How do you steward the home that God has given you? Or at the very least, if you're not comfortable with that, you can say that you have acquired with the gifts that he has given you, right? You can't, no matter how far you go back, you're going to get back to you, oh, because God gave it to me. What are you doing? How are you using that? How are we stewarding that? How are, you, how are we leveraging our possessions? Do we invest, oh my goodness, do we invest the most precious commodity, the most irreplaceable source 
resource that God has given us to the glory of God, our time. How are you investing your time, church? Are you receiving it as a gift? And then as the New Testament urges us, making the best use of the time. Are we investing this precious resource as living sacrifices united together with Jesus? Are you extravagant with the gift of your time? We cannot claim poverty in this regard because all of us have been given the exact same hours in a day. We haven't all been given the same number of days. But today is going to be 24 hours for me, also for all of you. And how we st- it's simply how we choose to steward that time. And I don't want to find myself claiming that I have no margin or no time to do the things that God has created me and saved me and commanded me to do and be. That's just not going to hold up. And I'm going to miss out on extraordinary blessings. Extraordinary, getting to see God work in extraordinary ways. Rather, church, let's be those, live as those who belong to this extravagant king, citizens of his extravagant kingdom. And create room in our schedules for holy interruptions. To be discipled and to make disciples. To leverage our possessions and our positions to benefit others and elevate others. To share our homes, our dinner tables, and our lives with followers of Jesus and with those who do not yet know how loved they are so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for all that you are and all that you have done Thank you that we get to participate in this extraordinary kingdom. Your kingdom come. Father, we pray truly that your will would be done in Peshtigo as it is in heaven, in Marinette and Menominee as it is in heaven, in Akanto and Lena and, and Coleman and Krivitz and Porterfield, and every other place that this family has reached, Father, as it is in heaven. I let people look at the people of this church and think, who is this God that would unite these people in this way, that they would live this one life together in joyful, delightful submission to him and to one another in such a way that spills out into the community with just blessing upon blessing, God, forgive me for the times that I don't want that, that I want something so much more hollow, so much more feeble, so much more temporary. God, stir in our hearts not only the desire for this, but remind us that in you, this is utterly achievable.
completely accessible. Give us the courage to step out in this until these things that seem strange to us seem foreign to us become the new normal and we wouldn't want it any other way. To your glory and our joy.